Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day so what makes a life a good one In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to episode 507 with my guest Brandon Stickney. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all our bullshit. And oh my God, is there a lot of bullshit in our brains these days? Well, maybe I'm alone. Maybe I'm I'm, I'm alone in that. But uh, I don't. It's probably not the most spiritual uh, thing to do when I'm upset. But I imagine people that I'm resentful at being struck dead. I I don't know if the Dalai Lama endorses that, but that's my go-to. And uh, sometimes I, ju- I just need to find something to, to take me out of that. Sometimes it's my video game. Sometimes it's talking to my dog, Gracie. I'm pretty sure that by now she is aware that, uh, that she is a princess. <laughs> I must tell her that she is the most beautiful princess in the universe a hundred times a day. And... I don't know if this is based in fact or not, but most princesses do shit by the front door because the royal family forgot to take them out. I always feel so bad for her when I wake up and and she's pooped because I know she's I know she's hanging in there trying to hold it. I think one of my favorite things that she does is when I'm petting her and I have to stop because I got to get back to my life, as I pull my hand away from her stomach, she takes both of her front paws and wraps them around my hand as I'm pulling my hand away. Oh, fuck. I love her so much. 
this is a happy moment filled out. Oh, by the way, uh, our website, metalpod.com, the donation page was inactive for a while. I didn't realize there was a glitch. Thank you to the listener that emailed me and let me know that. And uh, as a result, our donations have, have taken a dip, and uh, we definitely rely on those to keep the podcast going. So if you're able to financially donate, please go to the donate page on our website. You can donate either via PayPal or Patreon. And if you do it via Patreon, then uh, you qualify for extra goodies. We sometimes do like a raffle for a cutting board I made or uh, or other things. All right, let's get to some surveys. Uh, this is a happy moments survey filled out by a gender-fluid person who refers to themselves as Hungus Bungus, and they write, I was hanging out at my best friend's place, and I was trying to figure out how to play songs on their guitar. They keep pet rats and mention that sometimes, when sung to, they will start bruxing, and then in parentheses, clicking their teeth together. It means they're really happy and is kind of like purring for cats. I asked what kind of music rats like, and they said, rats high on coke like jazz. That I've got to imagine that's from laboratory experience, and you guys are not sharing your coke with them. Uh, so I managed a very simple, clumsy version of Fly Me to the Moon. One of them came out and started bruxing. I plumbed all my memories in the vault for jazz. I had a half I had half-heartedly learned in high school band, and we had a lovely time as my friend made candles and I serenaded the girls. Oh my God. You cannot make that up. And I would imagine that uh, if, the, if the rats are high on coke, they prefer bebop to uh, smooth jazz. Does anybody really enjoy smooth jazz? It's like one of those things that is gets played because there's there's no edges to it that somebody can complain about, but it's just so... I mean, maybe there's good smooth jazz out there, but I don't know if I have ever heard it. I like West Coast jazz, Chet Baker and Stan Getz, but I wouldn't call that stuff smooth jazz. This is an email I got um, from uh, GJXJRUV2H, um, and the subject line reads, Tonight I'm ready for anything you want, plus 18. And they write, hey, my legs are wide open. First of all, I want to congratulate you uh, and thank you for staying open as an essential business. Um, I don't know how that works when the business is your legs. Uh, I got to imagine that you only allow one person at a time and, and they're wearing a mask. I don't even want to know what parking looks like. Uh, continuing care for it. Hmm. I'm going to assume that you're referring to your vagina, and I would just like to say I am the wrong guy for that. If you if you look around my house, you're going to see a lot of dead plants. Plus, your vagina is with you all the time. Why would you not take on the responsibility of caring for it? It's your own vagina. I'll do what pleases you in bed. So, I am going to assume that you're going to tackle my insomnia 
I don't know how your vagina is going to do that. Maybe your vagina is so boring to look at that it puts people to sleep. I don't know what that would look like. Maybe your vagina is like smooth jazz. There's nothing startling or offensive about it. Maybe your vagina is the elevator music of vaginas. These are all thoughts that uh, I'm going to have to reach out and ask other people's opinions. And by those, I mean strangers. Thank you for that email. G-J-K J-R-U-V-2-H That's a difficult name to pronounce. And one more survey before we uh, we get to the interview with Brandon. Actually, I want to give a, a, a shout out to our longtime sponsor, BetterHelp.com Online Therapy. I mean, if today's climate isn't a perfect time for online therapy. I don't know if there's going to be a better time. BetterHelp, which is spelled B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P. Some people thought it was better health. It is not. It's betterhelp.com. They'll help assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and you can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. They have a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. And the service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in the uncomfortable waiting room as you do with traditional therapy. Better help wants you to start living a happier life today. So... Go to betterhelp.com slash mental, and that's H-E-L-P. Join the over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. And special offer for you guys, you get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash mental and make sure you include the slash mental so they know you came from this podcast all right back to our survey uh this is from the love survey filled out by somebody who calls themselves hypocrisy at its finest and they write i love when my dog lays right against me and it feels like i'm cuddling a person as he is as big as me i love going for walks with my dogs and how excited they get when i come home I love when my boyfriend gives me compliments when I'm not expecting it. And I love showering after a long day at work and going to bed right after. Oh, that is such a great one. And I, and I think the best part about showering before you go to bed is you can go way longer without washing your sheets. Every little thing feels like the end of the world. The darkness came so quickly. I was so fucking angry. Make me as close to dead as possible. And I felt so powerless. Without the commitment. If there's a word for it. Unbearable. It means somebody else felt this way. The feeling is so intense. It is a lot more work 
I was frightened all the time. To feed a child's emotional world, everyone feels pain, than it is their superficial world. Everyone suffers. My sexual addiction was the shame. My mom ended up killing that woman in front of me and my brothers. I had to feel that shame in order to feel the pleasure. And I was being a dick to everybody. We are social beings. And the only way you're going to get it out is to cry. We need to be with people. I grabbed them by their throats and led them down to the floor and watched the breath leave their bodies. Well, Maybe listen, thanks people. for coming in. <laughs> I am here with Brandon Stickney, uh, who is the author of a book called The Five People You'll Meet in Prison, A Memoir of Addiction, Mania, and Hope. And you have so many experiences bouncing from prison to prison. And in your memoir, you reveal a lot of things about the prison system that I think the average person would be shocked to learn. Um, first of all, thank you for, for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Um, there was a quote, and, and I couldn't find it again, but there was a quote in the book where somebody says something along the lines of um, somebody being in prison is the punishment, not the way they are held in prison being yeah. the punishment. <laughs> and that there is such a good point. And, and I think the average person, especially people who tend to lean towards the right, they really want it to be an inhumane experience, or it seems like at the very least they're indifferent to the inhumane treatment. Um, yeah. What do you think or feel when you hear somebody that's indifferent to COs randomly beating the shit out of somebody that hasn't done anything? Well, when I got out of prison myself, um, that's when I um, took all my notebooks that I had from the four prisons I was in and began putting some chapter outlines and things like that together for what would become this book. It had no title yet. And um, <clears throat> I had um, so many personal, horrifying, sickening revelations during that time, because if I was going to write a story about me being in prison, a, a university-educated uh, journalist who had, who had, who had achieved uh, some things in the journalistic field and um, uh, was a little bit distinctive, and if I was going to pro portray that, I was going to have to do my research. Um, every I've done three nonfiction books, and it it sounds like exaggerated, but it's really kind of true that when you are going to write a nonfiction book, a memoir, etc., you're going to have to read approximately 200 books on that subject because there's so many people who've been there before you, and you have to make sure that you're that you're not only processing the way they felt, the quote you just said was from uh, Wayne Kramer uh, from the 1960s band MC5. And he said, we were, we were sent to prison as punishment, not for punishment, which is really the prevailing thing today. Um, my, my first experiences were walking in walking outside, walking through the hallways, and just seeing these COs just, just grab somebody for no reason, rip their pants, looking for drugs to see if there are drugs in their pants. And these are young guys. These are like 18-year-old like kids, um, 19. 
talking about the kids they're doing this to or the COs? The the COs are in their mid-20s to late 30s and sometimes older, the life to the lifers. And um the uh the kids and, that they're and, doing. And this CO thing, by the way stands for uh commanding officer. Corrections officer. Corrections officer. Yeah. Okay. And in in prison everyone calls a corrections officer the CO. Go talk to the CEO and the CEO is over there. Look out, here comes the CEO, you know, and um, so, but these are young kids. And when we talk about reforming the system, I, I say first that we need to look at educational opportunities that are out there. And I see the liberals um, in favor of that, but um, the Republicans don't want to spend the money. Why are we spending money on these people who are just waste products? It was it, the prejudice is amazing. You know, we're talking about Black Lives Matter today, and it's it's coming from the GOP. It's more like White Lives Matter. And uh, when it comes to a prison, that's what we're doing with these people. You know, it's 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 horrifying. These young guys who were from the streets, um, they were they were getting into gangs. They were young men and they needed guidance. They needed someone to look up to. At home, they may not have had that. I'm talking, you know, any color, any race, any creed. Uh, they may not have had someone like that to look up to, to, to make their hero, to follow them. Um, what they've had instead has been these monsters who are in a position of authority uh, representing each of their individual states, by the way. So when uh, when an African-American uh, prisoner is beaten to death in Florida, whoever did that and they normally catch them now because they're, they're everyone's carrying cameras around, even the uh, even the inmates, if they can sneak them in. Um, these guys who are arrested for this kind of heinous crime. They represent the state of Florida. So this is a Florida problem, a New York problem. A Wisconsin problem, and I, I did um, I did a quick survey while I was working on the book, and I went to all 50 states on Google, looking to see if there was one state that didn't have problems of uh, inmate prostitution, uh, beatings, drug dealing, etc. I found two states that did not. The rest were loaded with crime stories on the part of the corrections officers. I'm going to guess those two states were the least populated states. I, I, yeah, it was something like, uh, I think it was like Utah and um, um, Wyoming, maybe Iowa, <laughs> yeah, yeah. something like that. It wasn't like, yeah. no, it definitely wasn't California or New yes. York. And uh, it's, it, it scared me and it still scares me today because we're, we're, we seem to be right on the edge of just treating people like they're garbage. You know, this is a guy that's a big garbage can. You were arrested and um, convicted of exactly what? I was uh, indicted for, and why I was indicted, I have no idea. Why this had to go to a grand jury. It was a simple street drug dealer, drug deal for um, uh, $80 worth of Suboxone. Um, because I wanted to get rid of my own medication so I could go buy beer because I love, I, you know, I just loved to drink. Drinking, drinking was a, that's the, you know, drug of choice. That's what I, what I would always go to. And um, 
<clears throat> these um, police officers were doing something that you may have heard of before. Um, if, if you if you live near a troubled or challenged neighborhood, the common council, the mayor, etc., they'll say, "We got to clean up these streets. We got to do this and that." So they send the sheriffs out to patrol all of the areas where poor people live because those are the bad areas and they start making arrests in those areas so then you know john q public says wow they made a lot of arrests down there on washburn street they were really doing some good work there right and then they took me who i was a active uh drinker and drug user and they put me into four prisons where there was alcohol, but I never really went for it. But I did use while I was in prison, including in one prison recovery program. We had drug dealers right in our dorm. Yeah. I mean, if you're a drug dealer, why wouldn't you go yeah. find the people that are most likely to, to, to buy your product? Uh, I, say, I say kind of as a joke that why don't we legally, I know I'm the advocate. Brandon Stickney, I'm the advocate for uh, legalizing drugs in prison, because when you're in a place like prison, um, it's the only shred of happiness, you know, unless you've been, unless you're, you're a religious person, um, but it's the only bit of happiness you're going to get during the day. Uh I would imagine there's a lot of people that roll their eyes at that or have a problem with that. I'm not sure what my opinion on on that would be. Uh, I just know the 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 way we have it right now is definitely not working, and and we need some other type of uh, way to to deal with what's happening. You know, a yeah. huge problem is the criminalizing of addiction. That is. Uh, I mean, what what percentage would you estimate of inmates uh, are people whose real issue uh, is addiction? Oh, uh, I think it's a national statistic. It's uh, between 60 and 70 percent where they're not rapists. They're not murderers. They're not the typical profile that you get with someone who's in prison it's it's people who got off the street just like i did and um went into prison wow there's drugs here and that gave me my momentary happiness now when i say i think drugs should be legalized in prison i'm saying it more along the lines of a modest proposal i'm not really saying that it should really happen but it's it's a shocking statement that might wake somebody up if people start advocating for it and realizing what we're really doing wrong. Talk about um, your bottom, where drugs and alcohol took you, and if there was any crossover as well with your diagnosed um, bipolar. Yeah, there there definitely is. Um, when I was young, um, my family and I lived in a suburb of Buffalo called Lockport, and we moved when I was about 10 down to Charlotte, North Carolina, 
and I thought we were in heaven. I loved it. My dad opened up a brand new advertising agency. My mother seemed thrilled by it. We were finally away from the snow. It was just, most of it seemed seemed wonderful. Most importantly, you were away from the Buffalo Bills losing Super Bowls. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I just kind of laugh that off. It's like, it, it, it's, it always seems like something happens during a Buffalo Bills game that turns the game around. And it normally has something to do with the referees, not with the kicker. Yeah. <laughs> the kicker is an anomaly. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I digress. Uh, so yeah, you well, moved down to, uh, was it Charlotte? Charlotte? Yeah. yeah. And, um, so we were there for about two years and, uh, terrible situation my mother's father died back in buffalo and um we needed to move back to lockport new york and comfort my grandmother and be there for her and so we wound up you know living in the next street and and just trying to keep the family together after this tragedy and um it was right around then that it hit it was right around then that my fear you know and what people who have depression um see which i hope they're I hope there aren't, I hope there aren't people who see what I see, because I just see a darkness. I could be walking down the street on a sunny day, and I only see the shadows, and it's horrific. You know, I hear that um, a rock star died, and I burst into tears. You know, somebody I didn't even know, just somebody I might have liked their music or something, and it's just an overwhelming um, feeling of violently sad emotion, and um, uh, in in that time, because I'm normally a very out, outgoing and happy person, optimist and somebody who leads a meeting, and um, <clears throat> I don't, um, I, that's not me, whoever that person is, but that person is really in touch with the darkness, and uh, I really don't, I, I don't like that person at all. It's like, it's like, uh, you know, Jekyll and Hyde, only um, I want, because of my my separate brand or universal brand of, of bipolar depression, sadness, et cetera, paranoia, of course, paranoia. Um, Were you diagnosed with bipolar one or bipolar two? I'm not really sure, but but, uh, I was at a a rehab clinic in the mountains of Pennsylvania and um, I just lost it. And I went into the psychiatrist's office and I sat with her for three days. I couldn't sleep. I, I couldn't think, I couldn't function. And um, she said, all right, well, we're going to try you on lithium and see how it works. And it was almost an instant transformation because it took very quickly, it took that sadness away, you know, and, and I was obviously sad because my grandfather had died and it was someone I loved and, <clears throat> and it was a very sad time for the whole family. And how old were you? Eleven. And that's when it kind of got discovered kind of around us, but no one, no one really knew what it was. And I started drinking. My parents always had a bottle of rum in the house and uh, I just could be right after school. I'd come home and make a, a rum and Coke and, and just let that feeling of ease and lack of fear. I would say mine is, is intense fear and sadness going together and let that let that drift away on the you know on the sales of that drink even though as you know it would really only last for a certain amount of time and then I was back into the dumps again 
fear to me really is the gasoline that fuels uh, addiction, fear, fear and anger. Um, to me, in my experience, especially as a recovering addict alcoholic, is the filter that reality gets passed through. And then the distorted view of ourselves in the world is what runs our emotions. It, it, it drives the bus. It, it makes our decisions for us. And, you know, w- whether it's the addiction or, um, the underlying mental health issue and, and prevailing opinion seems to be that with most addicts and alcoholics, there is an underlying mental issue on top of it. It's the reason why we self-medicate, but yeah. going out into the world with that distorted view you're just waiting for the other for the other shoe to drop. Um, it's the edge. You're you're standing at the edge. You really yeah. are, and you're making the decision whether to jump or not. And for me, I say jump. Maybe there's something better on the other side. You know, I'm not I'm not suicidal, and I'm not going to hurt myself or anyone else. Just saying that for the record. But um, but that's how deep my mind goes into this because there's no answer. And maybe there's no question, but there's certainly a big question inside me, and uh, probably why why I was such a big fan of um, music by Pete Townsend and The Who, because he was always asking questions. Why are we here? What are we supposed to be doing? What are my characters doing in this story? How do I how do I move this music forward and allow it to be a universal question? for people. And it just, his music just, it still sticks with me to this day. So give me some vignettes of your uh, experiences in prison and things that you have taken away from it that the average person might not know. This is Collins Correctional. Uh, It's just outside of Buffalo. I went to, I went to four prisons. Um, and how long were you incarcerated? 19 months. 19 months, okay. Yeah. And um, I, I went to, the, the first prison I went to was Wendy. And that was kind of like, welcome to prison. And then they sent us to Elmira, which is the, actually, believe it or not, it sounds like a cocktail party. They call it the reception center. And that <laughs> means they're basically going to kick your ass for two weeks and then send you off to whatever prison you're going to go to. So that's how I wound up in um that's how I wound up in Collins, and um, this is just uh, this is just a, a, a little just a little piece, very short. After countless inpatient rehab programs and many trips to the psychiatric hospital, I had learned the only thing that could make me stop was me. I was not powerless against alcohol. If I personally committed to go, if I personally committed to go without. But I did not have that commitment all the time. So I'm not arguing against AA philosophy. I'm just saying how it was with me. I felt, and I guess that's one of the big stumbling blocks that everybody has is they say they can't stop. So that's me basically saying that. Uh, that night, JoJo. So your, your audio dropped out a bit. You're saying that you can stop? I, my, my, my strong belief is that I can stop. But then okay. uh, back on AA's teachings and NA and other um, other um, scholarly looks at this disease. That's the perfect. This is the perfect alcoholic. I can stop anytime I want. Right. And I know I can. I know. I know I can. Without 
reaching out. Um, that night, Jojo asked if I was in for a 20. I said, sure, and he promised that after recreation, I'd be all set. I gave him some commissary food as payment. He showed up after recreation to report that his contact had almost got caught and had to swallow the balloon of Suboxone. <clears throat> so to get our stuff, we had to wait for a few days until the moron shit it out. I, I'd never pay JoJo again. I had been counting on him and no, I knew he was lying. One does not ask for payment in advance unless they are going to screw you. Against my better judgment, I got a $10 piece from Ears, which just shows that no matter how, how much you hate someone, you can never tell them. You might need them to score for you. And, and what I was getting was uh, Suboxone, which is a, a drug. I'm surprised it's still on the market. It's a drug to help people get off of opiate pills and heroin. And it has, but it has the same properties as heroin. So you could take it and get high. You can put it under your tongue. You can uh, stick a small piece in your eyeball. There's all kinds of ways that you can do it. And this drug and K2, that uh, synthetic marijuana or whatever it is, um, those are the biggest things for sale in, in our, at least our New York state prisons for now. Um, there's other drugs available, all kinds of things. There's people who make, uh, um, uh, you know, jug whiskey from apples. Can get you very drunk drinking these uh, these apples once they're processed. And uh, that, that's that's what these guys do all day. There's the guys who chase it, and there's the guys who make it, and the guys who make the money. And um, you better be careful that you don't get uh, pulled into some kind of a drug ring and you got a guy in there giving you more and more and more. Well, I can't pay for this right now. That's okay. Just take it. You, uh, you, you know, you, and that's the ride because they're going to, they're going to make you pay one day soon. How? Um, intimidation, gangs. They'll um, make you join a gang. What? They'll Sorry? make you join a gang. No. Well, they could. They can, yeah, commit, make you join a gang, gang and make you commit crimes. They could, yeah, because um, these guys will kill you. And I think it's almost better to be killed in prison than it is to wind up like the guys I saw who they either, they either ripped off a gang member, they lied, they narked, they told on someone, something like that. And then the gang came to get them. And what they do is they, they will get a shank, a, a sharp piece of something. It could be a, a toothbrush that's been filed down. And they'll come at your face with it, and they'll give you a big, long line from, from your ear all the way down to here. And because the uh, medical um, care is so inadequate in our prisons, I mean, it's just horrible. It's uh, probably worse than Thailand. <sighs> Actually, that's kind of prejudice against Thailand people, isn't it? I shouldn't have said that, but it's, it's just absolutely horrendous. And uh, you'll have a big bubble scar right along here for the rest of your life. And people know when they see you that you're either a narc, a thief, et cetera, et cetera. Talk about how the, the, the prison system has its own economy, its own set of rules, 
its own power structure? Um, what was the were any of the prisons you in you were in divided along racial lines, and you had to kind of uh, say, okay, I'm I'm in with the whites because it was a safer choice than being unaffiliated. My um, my first uh, actual dorm experience was with uh, a couple of guys. Um, one of them was a boxer and uh, he was good at karate too, I guess. He had boxing gloves right at the end of his bed. Um, African-American guy and uh, his good friend, um, a black guy who actually kind of became a good friend of mine because they, they, they found out while we were in the dorm that I liked to write and I've published books before and that I might work on something new. And so a lot of them had writings of their own and they wanted someone who had been out there before and actually done a book tour and actually met with people who were reading their works and all of that. And uh, they wanted to know what it was like and how they could get in to something like that. And this one guy his uh, he was my first, um, one of the people um, you'll meet in prison. He was, he was the first of the five. Um, his name was bear, big bear. And uh, he was part American Indian and part Italian. <laughs> great writer just a, he was really good i mean i was jealous i mean he, this guy put out a 200 page brett easton ellis in probably about two months and it was really nice it was a sweet book and it had all kinds of um it's, once i got out i contacted him i wanted to know what he was going to do and what he was going to do with the book and he was he was back in prison again which the uh returning or the recidivism rate for prison scares the hell out of me because it's 68%. If you've been to prison before, you could very easily return and become one of that 68%. If uh, and you can very, it's very easy to fall back in with old friends, old uh, locations, all of those things. You know, people, places, things, and um, think that ah, this time it's going to be different. I'm going to be smarter this time. But what I don't understand is. Now that we have COVID, a lot of these um, nonviolent convicts are being let out of prison. I don't know for how long, but um, these, I'm glad I'm not there now because our our prisons have, are, are, they're like a Petri dish, a Petri dish where it's just this fungus growing and it's moving from man to man and it's going off. All around the dorms and all around the the whole and, and it's going to kill them so i don't know if the republicans think that this is how we're going to get rid of the prison population which by the way is 2.3 million people 2.3 million americans in prison higher than the prison population of russia and uh, now they're talking about building supermaxes more of these big mass incarceration places and because it's profitable yeah it's profitable to have a prison, to run it. Um, for me to stay overnight in one prison somewhere, the federal government's going to pay, uh, say, Wendy Correctional in uh, near Buffalo, and they're going to give them money for me staying over. And it's a whole network of, of money making. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people aren't aware of uh, the change in the prison system becoming privatized and it becoming for profit. and 
essentially people having to work for ridiculous uh, hourly wage. They have, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but no choice. And they're about three cents an hour or two cents. And they are making money for, for corporations. So it's not being put back into our economy uh, to pay for the, the, the prison system. No. Uh, and there is a loophole in the, what is it? The 13th amendment. Yeah. That, that says slavery is illegal unless it's a part of somebody being incarcerated. Yeah. And uh, there's yeah. a documentary called uh, The 13th. Uh, I, I, I could be wrong, but it goes into depth about how that is still legal for people to be slaves in, in prison. And I was shocked when, when, when I saw it. Um, just uh, circling back, you talked about those two guys that befriended you, that you befriended because you were a writer. Um, and I was asking, did you uh, have to affiliate yourself with uh, the white gang? Uh, were there gangs that were? Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, you name a gang, they're in there. Was it broken down by race or other? Um. Yeah, I would say that it was uh, uh, kind of Latino, black. Um, there was the white power was everywhere. And I was asked to join a couple of their groups. And I, all, all I would say, because they would ask, they would ask, they'd come up to you and they'd stare right at you and they'd say, are you white? And I would say yes, because I didn't feel like getting into it with anybody, especially right. in a prison, you know, where your face gets, you know, and um, I never chose any kind of an affiliation because I wouldn't. But the the two black guys I met in in Collins, I had the I luckily for me, <clears throat> I had the opposite experience. They both became kind of like you know, jail cool, you know, prison cool friends of mine, and um, I think I felt it that I was given a lot of leeway because I was friends with them, and it was just because I bumped near them, you know, and we turned out to be turned out to be friends. I entered, I interviewed them. Their interviews are in the book. And, um, the, uh, one fellow was, uh, writing hood books they called them as in the neighborhood, the hood, they were hood books. And, uh, they were, um, um, and this guy was, uh, he had 10 of them lined up on his, on his shelf. When I met these abusive, mean, um, see you know corrections officers who were really borderline criminals was that i don't think and i was i was working on an essay earlier today i don't think some of them would have made it a year in one of their own prisons just wouldn't have made it and that happens a lot ceos get put in there because they got arrested for beating somebody up etc and and i don't you know how does any of us understand the rage in the streets or the rage in the prisons. It's, it's no different mm -hmm. either place, except prison is more of an industrialized slavery and abuse. You, um, I was not, I am not the same person I was. I am, uh, I am much changed, um, very quick to act sometimes, which is bad. 
and um, been very upset. And uh, it really, it 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 really pulled my faith in humanity away, you know. And um, and so I I tried to do you know what, write a book, get out there, talk about it, tell people about it, and maybe someday we'll see a change. <laughs> this all came from a guy, uh, the uh, corporal punishment. Is that what they call it? Corporal punishment. This all came from a guy named um, Zebron Brockaway, something like that. And he was a uh, late 1800s um, prison warden. And he was praised all over the country for having uh, corrections officers, you know, everyone, um, you know, beat these inmates into submission. That was his that was his thing. And, and America celebrated him at the time. In fact, it sounds like somebody else I know who currently holds office, but I won't mention it. And to anybody out there who's who's listening, who, you know, leans to the to the right of center. Uh, my attempt is is not to demonize uh, people on the political spectrum. It's more to give a snapshot of where we're we're at today. Um, I think. I think it goes without saying that uh, I believe that people who have harmed society need uh, consequences. Uh, they they need to be um, punished in some way or another, but the manner in which they're being punished seems to really uh, lack a lot of, of things. And, uh, you know, we haven't talked about, responsibility of people who commit crimes. Uh, you know, they, I'm, I'm not absolving them of their responsibility in, in society. Uh, you know, I just want to make that clear that, that, that everybody who's in prison is not a, is not a victim. Uh, but yeah. we're, we're focusing on the abuses that happen in there. You know, somebody might say, well, you know, you're talking about the COs being violent. You know, what about the person who's in there for murder? Uh, well, the difference is, is we don't pay with our taxes uh, the person who's who's in there for for murder. We're not paying them a an hourly wage. Uh, you know, the, the CO is working on behalf of the, the, the taxpayer. And that's the that's the difference. Um, and representing the taxpayer and representing the state. So when they get out of control, this is the state of New York out of control, Florida out of control. And and for some reason, they, they no one ever seems to talk about that. How? They, but yet when we talk about the federal government and Fed cases, big cases, we always say the government because the feds are representing the government. And it's it's funny how we don't do that with the average guy. Kamala Harris, who, as as of the recording of this, is you know uh, running as vice president for uh, on the Joe Biden ticket, is a shameless receiver of money from the corporate prison system, and uh, is, in my opinion, a wolf in in sheep's clothing. And if you know the Republicans are guilty of actively wanting prisons. To be a horrific environment, I would say that the Democrats are at the very least indifferent to it and because there's no money in it. Uh, there's no money in opposing what's going on, uh, and they aren't going to get 
any real bump in votes from being vocal about this being a problem. So, uh, you know, I, I just want to, to put that out there. Well, we had the first uh, step act when President Trump uh, first took office and the uh, Democrats and Republicans, everybody was all together. Let's do the first step act. And it's supposed to be, re- you know, revising the rules of, pre- of prison. And let's take a look at these people who've been in there forever. Let's set some free. And then it was just like, OK, where's the second step? Where's the third step? There's no more to this. It was just it. Just the third step. Just the first step. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I've been to many support group meetings in in jails uh, and, you know, been to dozens and dozens and dozens, uh, not as an inmate, but as, as somebody uh, facilitating the support group meeting. And when I first started doing it, uh, and it was in uh, maximum uh, security jail in, in Los Angeles, um, when I first started going there, I... Th- my fear was people are going to see me as a soft white guy from the suburbs and they're going to stab me. Um, in the years that I've been going there, the scariest person I've ever encountered was a CO. Um, yeah. The angriest, uh, just a bomb, just a guy waiting to explode. You just want to yell at him and go, don't you realize I've been to Hollywood? (laughs) (laughs) Look at you compared to me. What is your life worth versus what is my life worth? That's that's what I would have said. Yeah. Uh, I was afraid. No, I was uh, yeah. I was afraid to say anything. I was afraid to l- look this guy in the eye, and I think he thought that he was being my friend by coming in there and yelling uh, at them. But I don't think he realized that you know I w- I was there to help these guys to to show them that that somebody cared and the gratitude that I have experienced from going in there has been profound. Seeing a gang member, you know, with teardrops tattooed on his face, uh, yeah, as you know, is a sign of people that he has killed. Seeing him break down and, and say that he's so tired of this way of life, but he doesn't know how to change. Um, you know, that, that is, that's an intense thing to have a front row seat for. So I began to see the humanity of people in there, whether it's through their lack of responsibility as a member of society or being caught up in an unjust system or a combination of both. It's, I, I I just feel like if we don't try to get in touch with the humanity of some of the prison population, it's it's going to spill out into society. You can't just ignore it uh, because you're going to meet these people when they're out of prison, the yeah. ones that, that get out. And so is your family. Yeah. So what what are some of the myths about 
prison population, people's experiences in prison, any vignettes or stories that you would like to share that, that you feel like highlight stuff that people need to know? I think first I, w- I would like to say um, there were maybe maybe six, let's say six over the whole 19 months that I was in. There were six different corrections officers who for one reason or another were just outstanding people. You know, one was a guy who'd served in the Gulf War and he was just so calm and relaxed and and respectful whenever any, because you have to go to the um, corrections officer to ask for uh, soap and this and that thing. So the corrections officers can be driven crazy all day, but he's never, never, never flinched. And then there was, uh, there was another guy who was really my favorite. Um, he was a big Howard Stern fan and he was just very, very funny. When he came in, it was like, yes, it's Tuesday. Finally, he's back. And it was great because everyone really liked him. And uh, he wasn't a brute, a brute, you know, he wasn't one of those guys who stick you in the back. He was just a great guy. And and so that's why the book is called, um, it, it has the number five in, in the title because there's four inmates and then one um, corrections officer. And, but that one corrections officer is really two guys that I kind of combined into one <clears throat> because I did in, in, in writing the book, good guys and bad guys, I kind of had to protect their identity because if I ever went back in, you know, I didn't want to get my knife, my uh, face slashed with a knife. And, um, and I didn't want anything bad happening to the guys who were there. And, um, and it was just so, it was, it was so weird. One of the other guys, all of this is really kind of a lesson in contradiction because there was the guy in there. um, He is one of the five and he had a, um, an internet sex addiction. And that's what he was in there for. And he told his judge that when he, he's very much a man of God, and when he came before the judge, he said, I want the max. I want you to give me the max. I want to learn from this experience, and I don't ever want to do this again. And the judge gave him the max. Was he uh, involved in, in child pornography or what? What? Why? It was more sex? like um, uh, um, uh, female cop pretending to be a 16 year old girl on the internet and saying, you know, let's talk and let's talk to it. And then leading him on saying, we want to do this. We want to do that. I mean, that that's I his see. story. I haven't read his, his paperwork right. or anything, but that's what he said. You know, from what I understand, very few people in prison believe that they are there justly. Uh, most people say that they're, they're innocent. You'll rarely hear somebody say, you know, yeah, I did this and, you know, they were right. And- well, I did it. I mean, I, I sold drugs. I did it. Right. You know, I'm guilty. And um, he, most people I speak with say that I got a little too much time for my infraction. You know, I wasn't running pounds and pounds of cocaine out of my house up the street and doing this and that. And, you know, it was a it was a two time thing with a guy who was a confidential informant. And um- it was all because I wanted alcohol. 
So uh, back to the the guy that was the internet sex. Uh, oh yeah. And so he um, he got uh, the match. Pastor yes. Mark, I call him Pastor Mark because he was just so religious. And there were other there were there's probably sixty percent sex offenders in Collins Correctional near Buffalo. Mm-hmm. So whatever dorm you're going to in that facility, you're going to be surrounded by sex offenders. You know, if you're a drug dealer or you're whatever, you're, and they all, they lump them all together. So you'll be in with a murderer. You'll be in with somebody who deals. You'll be in with somebody who's uh, got conspiracy by the government or whatever. You know, kind of like a wedding them. where they try to seat you at a table with people that you don't know. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a kind service. It's probably <laughs> one of the only nice things that the DOJ does for people. <laughs> and maybe, uh, maybe that's the thing we need to pursue is that um, I think it's definitely um, it's definitely education because the education program in there was horrendous. I'm a, a, I'm a published writer and um, college graduate and I've worked in several different publishing companies. I've worked at Mercedes-Benz in finance and PR and uh, so you expect me seriously to learn small engine repair. I'm not saying that that, that career is below me because it's, it's not, it might be cool. It might be fun, but, but there's no office jobs. And you know how many people in, in 2.3 million people that we have incarcerated today, how many of those people are really office workers? And my thing that I've been asking people lately is 2.3 million people out of, let's see, well, after COVID, we lost a number. We used to be 3.3 million, 3.323 in the United States uh, number of Americans, and then 2.3 in the prisons. And um, how can all of those people, you know how many people that is? You know, if you put 10 people in your room right now, you realize how full it would look? Just 10 people. Try three, 2.3 million. Are they all really guilty? Is that possible that all of them are guilty? Well, doesn't America uh, have a quarter of the world's prison population? Some, there's some number that's percentage that's staggering. I just know that we have the largest in the world. So we have more than Russia. We have more than this country, that country. I don't have the, the list in front I, of me. I, but I believe yeah. we have more than all of Europe combined. That's, that's probably true. Yeah. And you know, this is a, this is a business. It's, it's all based on, that's what they were telling me. This, it's the first day I walked in there. They said, Stickney, this is all a business. You're not in here because you did something wrong. You're in here because a man wants to make some money. You know, and um, if so I hadn't I, gone to prison, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have been able to to speak out about it with a very small but some level of expertise, very small. But um, to be able to say this is wrong. So just to play devil's advocate, how should you have been treated when you were caught for dealing Suboxone or attempting to deal Suboxone? Um, mine was an ongoing case. I had um, stolen four loco from stores, uh, beer from stores. Um, I was really, my wife and I signed our divorce 
And, uh, interesting sidebar, your uh, show, Dinner and a Movie. Mm-hmm. She, my wife, Jennifer, turned me on to that years ago. And we started watching it every week. I loved it. Oh, thank and then you. when I heard from you on, on the email, I'm like, holy cow, holy cow, I can't believe I can talk to him. This is going to be awesome. It's <laughs> uh, very flattering. Well, she um, she loved the show, and so did I. And we, um, what did I deserve? Maybe I, maybe I got what I deserved. Maybe I had to be in there. Maybe if God exists, maybe I was put in there long enough to learn what I needed to learn because now I, my wits are scared out of me most of the time because of what could happen. And, and the, so that was really coming out of there and speaking with my father, who's a, he's a big Trumper. And so is my mother, you know, there were some things I could tell him and there were other things I just couldn't tell him because he didn't really want to hear it. You know, some, sometimes there's that ideology where, you know, you're not going to change my mind. That's he. He was one of the first readers of the book, and uh, he liked it. We. I look back. Uh, uh, in contradictions, we were talking about with the people and the uh, the five people you'll meet in prison. Was I was born in 1967, and so I was born and grew up around the 60s revolution. You know, the Woodstock was just a seminal moment in my life, even though I was three years old. And there was just so much, there was so much energy in the way my dad went to college at University of Buffalo and um, him and his friends, his art school friends, um, the people he grew up with, hung out with, played in rock bands with. It was a whole, it was a movie. The movement wasn't just these people protesting in the street. It was people who had a belief that we can be better and do better. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's funny to see the transformation in people where, you know, they just, I think my parents, um, they love me. And, um, but they weren't enticed by me going to prison, certainly, but they did support me the whole time. And that's where the meaning of, uh, the five people you'll meet in prison comes from. It's those guys I met who were just weird. And one guy's name is Gummy because he has no teeth. And then there's, you know, there's another guy who's just uh, a complete oddball. And then there's the COs. And, and uh, <clears throat> it's, it was, it was kind of a thing where, and and I think someone who is involved in, Alcoholics Anonymous would would understand this because it's 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 metaphorical and it's also um, it also rings with so much truth that by the time we got there and got put in our bunks and sent into our rooms and meeting all these weirdos, we were already free. Someone had already given us the key to our freedom. And what that key to our freedom was, was a learning experience. And it wasn't that they they always say the prison administration just loves to say, well, we treat you so bad because we don't want you coming back. Well, I don't really believe that because the more I come back, the more money you're going to make. So that doesn't really hold hold true with me. But each guy, including my one friend who's uh, um, 
he's living up in Corning, New York. His name is Gandhi, and uh, he's addicted to, to cough medicine. And what do we learn when we go through a prison experience and we say you're addicted to cough medicine, which is uh, um, dextromethorphan? It's like an acid high if you drink it real fast. And he hasn't learned a thing. You know, I know he's doing the exact same stuff he was doing before. And he's been put back in prison for it again. So what did, did prison serve him? Or did he do the right thing while he was inside? I think it's more that we're looking forward to getting out so we can go use again. That's the big lesson, or that's the big, that's the big feeling. That's how I felt. Talk about the microcosm of its own world that, that prison is. It's, it's economy, it's hierarchy of power, um, the shot callers in the dorms, uh, you know, which gang gets to go to the showers first, all, all of that kind of stuff. It's, it's its own society. Um, corrections officers will turn a blind eye and walk out of a room. Sometimes if they see a drug deal, sometimes if they see uh, two guys who are about to go at it, they don't want to get in the middle of that, you know, and if they see someone who's going to die, when you see someone drop, say they've been walking too much in the sun or they're having a heart attack or they're about to get beat up or whatever, the, the, the officers and the guards will not get involved in that. They stay right away from it. They, if someone is actually dying, perhaps having a heart attack, they may run for the defibrillator or whatever, but it's not, you know, the one that I saw, the guy went and got it and it was broken, you know? So this guy just died on the sidewalk and it took the uh, ambulance three hours to get it there. He had a heart attack? Yeah. 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 He had just eaten um, uh, dinner, uh, Ramadan dinner, I believe it was. It was a, it was a Muslim man. and. Um, the weirdest thing about it for me, it's like when, when someone's died near me and I didn't know him at all, I've always felt something. The dorm just kept going as if the guy had never existed, except for two or three guys who were in his um, prayer group. Now talk about the power structure in, in prison among the inmates. There's a, a sub society that is structured like our society but it's run by um, different gangs. And um, people say, you know, all oh, these, these gangs on the streets and these, these gangs out ruining our neighborhoods and, and this and that. And I guess as I, as I read about it, um, the gangs, um, a lot of which are out there today, were actually uh, formulated in jail and prison. So people could have identity, people could have uh, brothers to, you know, protect them and drugs and anything you want that's the gang is supposed to bring it to you and um the economy is something that for some reason as i researched it americans just refuse to look at it i keep saying over and over again you're this is 80 billion dollars of your money what this means is you're going to go to work for approximately two weeks every year paying for prison and 
the way to cure that ill, which everyone will say, is, well, the spending is lavish in those prisons. It's not. There's guys who don't have soap. There's guys who don't have a little towel to dry off with. There's all kinds of stuff. And that need inspires a lot of the criminal activity as well. I don't have soap, but I'll go get his. I'm a bigger guy than he is. And the society that is, it's, it's the society that has been created that is mirroring American society is, I thought it was going to reach a tipping point early in um, the COVID disaster. And uh, so I wrote a piece in um, the New York Daily News about it. And, um, but the death has been slower. It's still happening, but it's just happening a little bit slower than what I had said, what I had predicted. And- You mean people dying of COVID in prison? Yes, yes. Because if, okay, you're in prison, that's your world. And you have to have a nurse you have to have a doctor. Everyone needs one. Um, medications. Uh, people who have depression, things like that, we need to take our medication. And it needs, needs to be on time. It needs to be delivered every day. And we have to take it or there's going to be a problem. And the healthcare, medical care, has to be the worst, um, among the worst in the world in there. The doctors are just terrible. They're, they're un trained they're they don't care it's like meeting up with a, a angry co um the nurses they'll just push you all around um i mean it, it's, it, it's, it's, it's not surprising at all because the corporation that is running the prison for profit they're not incentivized for it to be humane or uh have any sense of rehabilitation it's the in their financial interest for people to keep coming back I just know that <laughs> it was winter in Marcy, New York, which is in um, the Mohawk Valley. And the Mohawk Valley, it'll snow four way, four different ways at once and hit you in the face while it's doing all this blowing and snowing and all that. And we had to walk down every morning to go get our meds in this snowstorm. And it was very dangerous. I mean, the things that you mentioned before that you wanted me to say that would like things that would shock people is if you're in a wheelchair and you're in a prison, um, you basically kind of give commissary, give candy, um, fruit, et cetera, books to a buddy in the dorm with you to get him to push you through the snow. There's no, there's no official, capacity in any of this stuff everything's like no just let the let the uh let the inmates do it the the ceos like practically they they put their arms like this and they walk away like oh my god i can't touch that i can't even get near you you're disgusting you're an inmate you're lower than me the caste system don't you understand it <laughs> yeah and um Watching the guys, I thought that was pathetic. And then I saw guys driving. They threw um, they threw a couple of the young guys into a van, and they just drove. They were driving all over the place. 
And those vans in the winter, or whatever, they, those particular vans don't have seats in the back. So these guys are shackled. And they're bouncing off of each other and off of the walls as these guys fool around. Ha, 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 ha. They just think it's the funniest thing in the world. And it's tolerated. The drug raids, we had drug raids all the time. Funny, because uh, this was in Marcy, I think. A couple places. Um, they never found anything. Now, one of the big rumors is, and I never saw this personally, but there are corrections officers who deal drugs. So who's bringing this stuff in here? There's your answer. And I never believed it myself, but I've read more and more about it. And there's been guys who've gone down for it and lost their jobs and things like that. And he, he guys making $40,000 a year. And um, when you look at the broad population of a prison, Seriously, do you, other than going in and talking about um, abstinence and things like that, do you really want to hang out with these guys? Probably not. You know, maybe some of, some of them are good guys, but at the same time, they're just, they, they, you lose your place in society. So you, this is where the, the hierarchy comes from, is here, you were in American society. You were a member of our community. Then you got put into prison and you're officially a, you're part of this community now and you can't get back into this community. The other shocking fact is many uh, prisoners, when they eventually leave prison, um, they're, they, they do their whole time and it's up and then they're sent out on a bus and they're done. You know, they got $40 in their pockets. They're homeless. They don't have a place to go. They're, they're, they just got out of the prison. They're walking around the streets with their old street clothes, and they got $40. So where do you think they're going to go? If they're an addict, they're probably going to go to the nearest spot and go cop on the corner because it, the experience sucked. And um, who's going to ask? You know, we have so many charities and groups that reach out to people, you know, um, Salvation Army, you can go on and on, but it's easy to get passed over in these places too. Um, you know, you may be well-spoken, you could be very smart, you're wearing terrible clothes, for whatever reason, they don't have enough to give you. Where, where are you going? I was, I'm extremely, extremely lucky that I was able to walk out of there and stay with my parents my father bought me a new computer, and I sat down and I wrote a book. That's extreme luck. If I had been sent anywhere else, I would either be back in there right now or back using heavily again and on my way back in there. And uh, other guys don't have that. Brandon, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast and, and sharing sharing all of this stuff. Uh Brandon's book is called The Five People You'll Meet in Prison, A Memoir of Addiction, Mania, and Hope. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, very honored. Thank you. I hope you guys got something out of that uh, conversation. I know I know, I did. Um, I kind of love it and hate it when you learn about shit that's going on in the world that... <laughs> that needs to be changed is like oh really another thing to feel guilty that I'm not putting any effort into
That's why it's important to vote. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Let's dive into some surveys. Um, before we do that, just a reminder, if you want to help the podcast in a way that's non-financial, uh, go fill out surveys. Uh, love hearing your personal experiences, stuff that's going on inside you, and they're all available at the website, totally free, totally anonymous. And uh, also go to iTunes, if you would, and uh, give us a, a good rating, if you feel it's appropriate. Uh, write something nice about it. Uh, and probably the biggest thing, uh, no matter what your podcast player is, uh, subscribe to the podcast. That increases our, our downloads, and those are really important for uh, getting advertising. All right, surveys. This is from the Love Survey filled out by Psycho Beauty, and they write, I love being home and watching the snow fall and seeing nature slowly getting covered while everything else around me is quiet. It's the most peaceful thing I can think of. I love winter. There is something I love when when snow muffles the the sound, the outdoor sound. I think um, I've shared this before on the podcast, but just the most beautiful silence I think I've ever heard was in the mountains when it was snowing and there was no wind. Oh, I could just feel my body slow down. Uh, they also write, I love when someone stops in traffic to let me turn and they give me a little nod or wave so I know I can go. That It's funny, that's such a little thing, but it makes such a difference in, at least for five minutes, how we view the world. It's so easy to just look at the world and think, oh, it's just a fucking jungle and it's only a matter of time until I am dying in agony. <laughs> Does that sound a little harsh? There's so many things in our in our modern world that just add a little bit to that feeling of 
being unsafe. I was watching, um, actually I was reading a book, uh, and one of the things they talked about is the very first case of somebody tampering with medicine and uh, slipping poison. It happened in Chicago, I don't know, probably 30, 40 years ago. Uh, somebody put cyanide in bottles of Tylenol, and that was the thing that led to uh, things being sealed. And that's why when you open a, a bottle of pills now or anything, any food, it's got that seal so you know that it, it wasn't fucked with. And I think on some level, every time you do that, it just reminds you, oh yeah, there's really bad intentioned people out there trying to trying to harm me. Maybe not me personally, but anyway. It's hard. It's hard taking all that shit in every day and not letting it get to you. This is from the racism survey filled out by a guy uh, who calls himself anonymous. I think I've met him before. He is Caucasian, and uh, he writes, I grew up in an extremely racist area. I played a lot of sports, and a lot of my teammates regularly used the N-word, insisting it was okay because, quote, there's a difference between black people and uh, N-words. Every time I heard that, I would argue about how that was such an incredibly racist thing to say, but it would always end up with my teammates ganging up and bullying me or anyone else that agreed, which didn't happen often. This was primarily in high school, but I heard it on my college sports team as well. It's sickening to me that even to this day, I see posts on social social media from my former teammates still conveying those hateful views. Do you remember how you felt when it happened? Whenever this type of thing happened, it was maddening. But I also found myself beaten down to a point where I didn't feel like fighting anymore because all that came with it was ridicule. Then that led me down a path of apathy, which made things much worse. I wasn't as vocal in college at first because my point of view was that I was never going to change their minds. All that was going to happen was I was going to get made fun of and ostracized. But that only lasted to a point, and the guilt I felt for being weak and not standing up for what was right had just completely overwhelmed me to the point where I just didn't care if I was bullied for my views anymore. Needless to say, my former teammates don't keep in contact with me anymore, but the ones that do really appreciated when I started standing up against people when they said racist things. I've learned to focus on those good moments. For the longest time, I felt like trying to see the good in people was a hopeless endeavor, but you have to keep focusing on those glimpses of light that shine through. Fuck the bullies. Stand up for what you believe in. They will figure out that they were on the wrong side of history someday, and if not, that is on them. How do you feel about it now? I feel like I really learned a lot about myself and became much more aware of my values. I tried the conformity route and it was a disaster, but I'm thankful for that. I'm much more hopeful as I've spoken to people from my racist hometown that are completely willing to share the regret they have about how racist they were as kids and in high school. That is the step everyone needs to be taking. Admit that your mind has created some fucked up racial views and address them. Don't shove it down and point somewhere else. The only way our society is going to make progress is by letting go of your precious ego and accept the fact that we all have biases we need to address. As fired up as I am, though, I do feel a lot of hope from seeing the protests continue and participating and becoming more inspired to fight for these changes that need 
and all participating in conversations with others who truly want to change. That group is rising in numbers as my generation and younger generations are becoming more inspired to fight for these changes that need to be made. Any thoughts or feelings you'd like to share? Just a personal pet peeve, liberal or conservative, stop with the bullshit, I don't have racist feelings at all, or my family isn't biased because we participate in this, that, or the other thing. Every single one of us has biases. It is absolute, there is absolutely no progress being made, being proud. Even those of us fighting and protesting have our own unconscious biases, or is it biases? And there is no shame in that. It just means we have an opportunity to notice those unconscious biases as they come up, challenge them, and change our way of thinking. Claiming you don't have biases only perpetuates the problem of race in this this country because it is a bald-faced lie you are telling yourself only so you feel good. This isn't about you. This is about those who are being oppressed. Leave your ego at home. Thank you very much for that really appreciate that. This is from the love survey filled out by good old wizard pie. No idea what that means. Uh, And they write, I love the smell of fresh, healthy, wormy dirt. (laughs) Such great words. Wormy dirt. I've never thought of dirt as, as being wormy, but I do love when you see soil, like you drive past a farm and it's been tilled and it's just looks so black and nutritious. Do I want to eat it? Maybe a little. Maybe a little sprinkle on my Sunday. I love sewing up holes in my clothes and socks. I love seeing wild osprey flying off with fish in their talons. I love trance and deep house music that can pause the world. And I love coffee. God, do I love coffee. I'm going to go make a cup right now. Try using coconut milk instead of cream. It's amazing. Oh, I disagree. I love... I love cream. There's just no substitute for it. I've heard oat milk is really good. I don't know if I've tried that yet. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Mr. Creamy Shits is an, is an anagram for Merry Christmas. I don't know how you figured that out, but kudos on your intensive work. Uh, she identifies as bisexual is in her 20s, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. When I was around preschool age, two older female cousins of mine would, quote, play house with me. Although the game was sexual, there was no direct contact with any private parts or even kissing. It was a lot of getting as close as possible without actually doing anything. We were kids, so I don't hold anything against them, even though I do find it a little questionable considering they were older. Also, I was in an on-again, off-again relationship for the majority of high school with this one guy. There was a time when we were in his best friend's room. His best friend and my best friend were there and also dating each other. And while they were playing a video game, my boyfriend tried fingering me. We had been arguing earlier and things were still a little tense between us. And his solution was to get sexual to help put things behind us. I told him I didn't want to do anything, but he persisted, saying that I had wanted it earlier. I didn't raise my voice or fight back more because I didn't want to make a scene in front of our friends. Afterwards, I got up, broke up with him, and walked home. 
uh, ever been physically and, and by the way those I, both of those things I would I would qualify as uh, as definite violations um, and it but it, you know ultimately it doesn't really matter what what matters is processing what what happened to us it's not about you know the quote-unquote court case it's about feeling seen and heard and having our experiences uh, validated. Uh, she's not sure if she's been physically or emotionally abused. She writes, another boyfriend of mine encouraged my eating disorder by commenting on how much of a fat slut I looked in form-fitting clothes. Yeah, I would say that's emotionally abusive. He would also call to tell me he was going to kill himself uh, and that if I didn't talk him down, I would be responsible for his death. A little much to deal with at 14. Wow. Wow. That is such a manipulative thing to hold over somebody. You know, and I've read surveys and talked to people who have used that manipulative behavior to uh, emotionally coerce someone into sex. If, if you don't fuck me, I'm going to kill myself. Which was the name of my favorite sitcom. Darkest Thoughts. I relish the idea of my mom and boyfriend mourning me if I committed suicide. Darkest Secrets. I had the hardest time potty training my dog. It felt like no matter which tactics I tried, there was always an abundance of piss and shit on me, my carpet, and my bed. It truly felt like he was doing it to spite me. I know that's impossible. He's a dog. I would cry, cry while trying to soak up pee from the park carpet because I was so frustrated. After one of his accidents, I broke and hit him until my hand hurt. Seeing him crouch as close to the floor as he could get and refused to pick his head up made me feel like an absolute scum of the earth. How could I treat my baby that way? I love him more than I love myself, and I truly failed him in that moment. Well, the important thing is that you have regret for that. You know, we all make mistakes. We all, at some point or another, let, let our anger get the best of us, when, whether we turn it outwards or, or inwards. Um, but I hope you've, you've forgiven yourself. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you I really want to see my boyfriend fuck another woman someone more suited to his liking someone who I feel he deserves there's nothing I want more than to see him look as lustful, lustfully as he looks at me at someone who actually deserves him wow that's intense what if anything do you wish for I just want to be happy with myself and my body have you shared these things with others? I've told my mom and boyfriend about my eating disorder and insecurities. At first, they were concerned and empathetic, but now I think they're just tired. Well, I have a question for you. What are you doing to get help for it? Because that is a big thing to, to tackle, you know. It's uh, working on an issue that is so deeply emotional by ourselves is it's it's pretty insurmountable in in my opinion and we need human connection and love to help deal with that and to see what our own personal issues are underneath because the, 
you know, take any addiction and the real issue is the thing that's driving the actions, the addictive actions, you know, whether it's feeling insecure or unprocessed trauma or an inability to set boundaries or self-advocate. Those are the things that we need work on and trying to see those issues clearly by ourselves is uh, it's fucking near impossible. How do you feel after writing these things down? There's a lump in my throat. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You're loved and deserve to be happy. Isn't it amazing how we can tell someone else the thing that we need to hear from ourselves? But it's so hard. It's so hard. That mean voice in our head is so fucking powerful. This is an awful some moment filled out by Paige Alexis, and I'm just going to uh, edit on the fly a little bit. Uh, she is an ER nurse, and her fiancé is an ER physician, and uh, her work has been getting to her lately, and a lot of her personal fears and anxieties uh, have been fucking with her and uh, she writes as my anxiety builds and spirals out it conjures up old trauma and memories I tucked away and thought didn't affect me what led up to this conversation with her fiance was me confiding that I was struggling and him asking for the present thought in my mind in parentheses bless him for trying I open up and share with him a memory that was replaying for the last few hours of a 911 call I responded to four years ago when I was still working as an EMT on an ambulance. It was a vehicle accident, and as we approached, we could see a single car that was wrapped around a pole. Uh, he likely overcorrected the sharp turn on the road. When we walked up to the window, it was an obviously deceased person. The face so mangled it looked like pulp and was unrecognizable. We called the coroner and the police officer on scene said, oh look, we can get his name off of his mail. I then peered into the remains of the vehicle and saw his mail had flung all around the cab and I felt sad for thinking he had just left after picking up his mail. Fast forward to this week and the memory was in the front of my mind after blocking it out for nearly four years. I told him that I keep having an irrational, intrusive thought that him or I will be innocently grabbing the mail, tossing it into the back seat, without knowing we are about to spin out to our deaths. Hoping he'd assure me that he drives safely or sympathize with how disturbing that is, but it wasn't going to happen to us, I tearfully looked up at him. He paused for a moment and said, well, just don't drive with the mail in your car. I couldn't help but burst into laughter, one crazy person trying to console the other. Sometimes you just need a good laugh to shake off the weight. Oh, there, There is something so profoundly heartbreaking about seeing something in relation to a deceased person that highlights the fact that they had no idea their death is coming. And let's end the podcast on that note. Uh, this is a happy moment. This was filled out by a woman who calls herself Green-Eyed Moonchild. And she writes, I love the feel of velvety cool earth, soft spring grass or moss beneath my bare feet. 
It's especially great when the air is crisp and I'm snug in a hoodie and jeans. I breathe in the chill and smile. Uh, Sometimes in the morning, my asshole cat comes in and wakes me up. She doesn't like anyone but me, and that isn't saying much. But somehow she knows when I'm about to wake up, and she will jump up and nuzzle my face. The first sound I hear when I wake up is her purring as she finds a comfy spot on my chest. And for a minute or two, we snuggle before I have to get out of bed and start the day. I love that damn cat. I used to work in hospice. I loved being the one caring for these patients because I knew they would be kept as comfortable as possible and I could control their environment so they slipped away in peace. No pain, no drama, no bullshit. I cared for each of them like they were my own family member and I kept them safe and sound. No one died alone. There was so much I couldn't control in this life, but if I could control these patients' comfort in death, that's pretty cool. Wow, that is that is deep. Thank you for those. That is one of my darkest fears is that my death is going to be filled with suffering and prolonged and alone. And I think that's one of the things that's so scary about COVID is people are dying alone. I mean, maybe they'll have their family on a you know, video, on t- a tablet or a computer, but mm. As if we don't have enough heaviness, uh, this is a shame and secret survey that's pretty, pretty fucking heavy. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Honey Flea. She identifies as pansexual. She's in her 20s. She was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. She was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. I was molested in my early childhood, ages six to eight, by my mother's ex-boyfriend. I have no memories, rather physical flashbacks when I am triggered. I experience intense fear, screaming, pulling out my hair, begging for my mom, pleading for it to stop during my panic attacks. I was the victim of a sexual predator I met online at 16. He proceeded to exploit me for years. And at 19, I was raped. I'm so sorry. That is... That is so much. I mean, even just a single one of those would... uh, Moving on. Uh, Any positive experiences with the abusers? The older man I met online was my best and only friend for four years. We had amazing conversations and laughs. I didn't know it was abuse until people found out about him. I still think about going back and talking with him to this day. He knows I always come back when I need someone. The man who raped me at 19 had two kids whom I loved very much. I continued to see him because of the kids. He exploited that. I feel guilty that I got away from him. I have a sneaking suspicion he's done something bad. Darkest thoughts. I sometimes get turned on by animals. I'm extremely attracted to older men. I want to be raped, and I want to be degraded in every way. Darkest secrets. When I was very young, I was intimate with an animal. I didn't understand my sexual urges and anger. I regret it every single day. I sought to create trauma with my rapist. He knew. Uh, he knew. I found out I didn't want to be raped after all. I began watching porn every day for hours at the age of eight. I masturbated anally every night from age six on. I shared a bedroom. So 
Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Being completely dominated, tied up, degraded, hit. It makes me feel dirty, ashamed that I want to put myself through that. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone that you haven't been able to? I want to thank the sexual predator for being the only reason I didn't kill myself. I was so lonely, but I hate him with every ounce of my being. I still think about him and check my email every day to see if he sent me an email telling me I'm a piece of shit. And I just want to send you a hug. You have been wounded so fucking deeply, so deeply as anybody would with the things that you've experienced. What, if anything, do you wish for? The ability to understand why I did what I did, to work through the shame, to be able to say what I did aloud to that poor animal and move on, understanding I was a child, facing my trauma head on and working towards a positive life. Have you shared these things with others? No. They would leave in an instant if they knew I had abused. No, they wouldn't. No, they wouldn't. You know, like I said in the other survey, you know, we've all become emotionally overwhelmed and done things that we regret and everybody's got a different flavor of what it was that they did and the important thing is is that you're not doing it anymore you're being way too hard on yourself how do you feel after writing these things down sick relief shame sadness regret anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences When we aren't taught right from wrong, we engage in activities, whether it's finding solace in a predator, abusing an animal because you can't control the anger and sexual urge you feel, or creating trauma. When there is no positive role model, we try to be our own, and we can't make a map if we don't know the proper layout of life. It's not your fault. You are a kid. What matters is right here and right now. The choices you make define you. Your ability to be empathetic for that child and forgiving defines you. Your ability to ensure you never repeat those mistakes define you. Man. That is such a powerful, powerful survey. I really appreciate you taking the time to uncover all of that stuff. That is, and I hope you can find a way to take your your own words to uh, to heart. But I know, I know how hard it is. For some reason, we mistake that mean voice in our brain as the voice of discipline and growth and it's not it just keeps us stuck and small and afraid and disconnected finally uh, this is a happy moment filled out by a guy who calls himself just a dad and he writes i love picking my kids up from school and daycare i love hearing my twin three-year-olds say daddy's here in unison and running as fast as they can to hug me i love hearing about my six-year-old daughter's day when i pick her up from school i love being a dad Man, man, did we need to hear that one. Man, did we need to hear that. Thank you for that. And um, if you're out there and you are struggling, oh boy, you're not alone. You are not alone. And I don't know if that helps to say that or if it depresses you more, but um, man, now now more than ever do we need human connection. And, uh, you know, I struggle with that 
that urge to want to pull away and numb and, and isolate. But I always feel good after I pick up the phone or I do an online meeting or practice some type of self-care. But God, it's hard. It's hard. So if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, just remember you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.